Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books and Native American Studies. I'm Andrew Epstein, and thanks for listening to this podcast for the New Books Network. Each month, we pick a newly published work in Native American and Indigenous Studies and spend the hour speaking with the author. Today, we're joined by Dr. David A. Chang. He's professor of history at the University of Minnesota and the author of a phenomenal new book, The Color of the Land, Race, Nation, and the Politics of Landownership, in Oklahoma, 1832 to 1929, released last year by the University of North Carolina Press. This is, in many ways, a very timely book to be discussing. While Chang's work concerns the history of the Creek Nation, the Supreme Court of their neighbors in Oklahoma, the Cherokees, recently upheld the nation's decision to deny Cherokee citizenship to roughly 2,800 descendants of freedmen, slaves who were owned by members of the Indian nation. The national media, usually quiet on indigenous issues, has paid some attention to the matter, but unsurprisingly in a fairly shallow manner, basically echoing what I've heard from not a few friends, isn't it ironic how victims of white racism can act just like whites? Amateur commentators would do well to consult Chang's book. Like so many issues tossed around in popular discourse, Racial inclusion and exclusion, questions of sovereignty and citizenship, and the ever-important dimension of land have a deep and complicated history in Oklahoma, where many Indian nations, the Creeks and the Cherokees included, were forcibly resettled after the ethnic cleansing campaigns in the American Southeast. By exploring conflicts of race, land, and nation, Chang offers us a vital insight into some of the most important dynamics of U.S. history and just maybe a path toward a more equitable future. I hope you enjoy the interview. Dr. Chang, welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm glad you could be here. Thank you. I'm so pleased that I can talk with you. Great. So today we're discussing your new book, The Color of the Land, Race, Nation, and the Politics of Land Ownership in Oklahoma, 1832 to 1929. It's out from the University of North Carolina Press, which is a, a frequent publisher on this program, which I think is a testament to the quality of the books they continue to publish in the field. And now there's a ton to discuss in this brilliant and illuminating work here, but I'm hoping you can uh, start by, I can start by asking you to introduce yourself. Um, well, I'd be happy to. Um, so I, um, uh, my, I'm an associate professor of history and American Indian studies here at the University of Minnesota, and I've been uh, teaching here since 2002 and uh, recently published this book that we're going to be discussing today. I went to graduate school at the University of Wisconsin, um, uh, which was returning to my home state. I had been away to college in California. And uh, it was in graduate school that I arrived at this topic. Great. So um, I want to begin by uh, asking you a few general framing questions here, which I think will lead us into the substance of your argument. Um, First off, in your introduction, you write, the history of Oklahoma is a history of movement, possession, and dispossession. It is American history told in fast forward. It captures the dynamics of global history in the middle of a continent. 
Um, this is obviously quite dramatic language for a state that's often considered peripheral uh, in a lot of the historical writing to the major changes going on in the United States in this period. So I just want to start by asking why Oklahoma? Why is it such a central story to understand American history? That's a really great question. Um, I, I, the, the book is a, that, that is intentionally provocative language. Um, of course, and is and, and, and but it, and I hope that it provokes the reader to to read through the argument and to um and to see that the argument that I'm making about the intersection of conceptions of uh, of ideas and practices of race of nationhood and of structures of land ownership and of class and how those are deeply related are best illustrated in uh, Oklahoma. Um, and I can really speak to the biggest questions in American history. But how I got to it, I mean, is, is, is it a very, very circum, uh, it was, it was a really, really quite a path. Because it took me a long time to get there. Um, in graduate school, as a person of Hawaiian descent who strongly identifies as a Hawaiian, I wanted to work on, on Hawaiian history, but I found it difficult to imagine doing that because I didn't have the background, I didn't have the teachers, I didn't have the language skills uh, in order to do that properly. So I began to think about a comparative dissertation involving Hawaii and perhaps Puerto Rico and Louisiana, but that ended up being too complicated. But the interest in Hawaii led me to interests uh, in issues that are central to the book. Um, Indigenous history, the relationship between race and class, um, race formation in places with very complex um, racial situations, well beyond the binary, um, and also in what we now call settler colonialism. And Hawaii also, of course, is a place that many people would think of as peripheral to the United States history, okay? Um, as it's literally on the periphery, uh, far out. In a strange way, Oklahoma allowed me to engage in a long process of reflection on those questions about indigenous history, race, class, complex race formation, settler colonialism, um, many of these same questions, but in the middle of a continent. Um, because like Hawaii, uh, Oklahoma is a late, uh, statehood was imposed on Oklahoma late in 1907. Like Hawaii, it's a place with a very complex racial situation um, involving indigenous people who are strong and visibly present and maintain their presence strongly um, and uh, racialized uh, laboring population um, and in uh, Asian in, in Hawaii and African-American in Oklahoma. And um, and then a kind of a, a kind of a settler colonialism, a white settler colonialism layer on top of that as well, which has been complicated in, in Hawaii by an Asian settler colonialism situation. So all of this allowed me to do that kind of complexity um, in a place that ironically, geographically couldn't look any diff more different. And as I dug into Oklahoma, and as I really began to love Oklahoma history and, and to love Creek history especially, um, I was convinced that this place and its story and the way that it brings together American Indian history, the history of white supremacy, the history of the American South, the history of American West and American conquest in the West, um, was just tremendously evocative um, and, and spoke to American history, but also in the history of colonialism, of course, sexual settler colonialism is not just an American history. Um, and the way that it spoke to the place of land and racialization um, in settler colonialism was, uh, I thought, uh, a way to speak to world history and to do the big stories in world history in central Oklahoma. 
Um, what about the issue of land ownership here, which you see, which is very another central um, conceptual framework or an, an articulation between the processes of of race formation and nation? How did you how did you come to see land ownership uh, as a central category here? Land ownership is absolutely central to indigenous history. Um, we can't do indigenous history under colonialism without talking about land ownership. Um, not only who owns land, but the creation of ownership in land itself. Um, and so that is the story that structures the dispossession. It's the story of the dispossession, uh, the creation of ownable land that is taken from indigenous people. Um, places land immediately at that at the center of our our vision, but the creation of land ownership also allows for uh, the, or also structures the story of rural class formation, um, uh, because it's the question of the landowner and the landless, the land renter and the landlord. That story uh, speaks immediately then to African American history, to the history of um, poor white people um, in rural areas uh, in the United States, especially in the American South. So, therefore, I didn't. Um, land ownership is more than just a rubric that I imposed on this story. I really argue that land ownership emerges from the story itself as a central force um, in that story, um, and it's and it emerges. It's almost impossible for me to do these, these sorts of social histories of uh, indigenous people without land um, coming very strongly into the story very quickly. Hmm. Just uh, by way of a final sort of larger theoretical question, um, you, I really enjoyed the way you, you bring together the study of, of discourses of race and nation with what you call the material consideration of class conflict over land. And I often find a particularly in contemporary academic literature, that studies of these discourses of race are often quite severed uh, from political economy or from materialism. Uh, why bring them together in the manner that you did, and, and how do you see that playing out? Well, first of all, thanks a lot. It's very kind of you to say that. Um, second of all, how did I, I – that was a goal of mine from the very start because I felt the same tension as you, um, and I still do feel the same tension as you because – um, through the 1980s into the 1990s, um, through the um, addition of wonderful contributions um, from theory, from post-colonial studies, from um, attention to discourse, um, we arrived at increasingly sophisticated means of analyzing and narrating the elaboration of discourses of difference, um, uh, differences of, of race, differences of gender, differences of nation. Um, but that discursive analysis, I felt, was, as you suggested, oftentimes not accompanied by an adequate attention to material uh, consideration. So, um, Whereas that had very been, whereas those sorts of questions of, of class conflict, of ownership, uh, had been very much the center of the old labor history, or even the kind of the uh, uh, newer labor history in the 1970s, kind of old social history um, that that people were engaged in in that period. Now I didn't want to return to that, but I simply could not imagine talking about the stories of these people and the discourses, you know, stories are of course discourses of their difference without placing it within the day-to-day -day conflicts um, that they were engaged in, the conflicts over resources that they were engaged in. 
So um, if you will, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to reading Foucault a long time ago in graduate school, though certainly you know, he's not an author that I bring up in this work. It was a question of, wow, this is wonderful. We can now analyze power with such sophistication. It can think about the way that power is manifested um, within discourses and, and, and discourses create and, and promulgate power. But I want that sophistication to be related to the situations in which people are struggling, especially because mine is a history of ideas where I really try to draw on the ideas of people who we would never recognize as intellectuals. Um, but the ideas of, um, of a Creek town Nico or of a white sharecropper or of a black uh, share tenant or a black newspaper uh, writer in a small black town, these histories of ideas are embedded in the uh, the, the terrific struggles for survival, for wealth, for control um, in the 19th and the 20th century. And to talk about the discourse without embedding it in the struggle, um, to me, didn't make any sense. Yeah, and I think that's a, a fantastic um, framework for going forward for future studies, and I very much appreciated reading that. Um, returning to the question of, of land ownership or, or relationships to the land, I know it's a, a dramatic and very complex transformation, but I'm hoping you can spend a few minutes um, laying out for our listeners um, the different concepts you see of property in the 18th century Creek Nation and uh, what's now Georgia, Alabama, um, with what began to develop before and after um, their forced removal to Oklahoma. Okay, great. Um, what happens, the Creek Nation and this is not unique to the Creek Nation. It's a political, but it's a property system that is um, fairly common um, among a number of uh, Native American people who are involved in horticulture. Um, uh, society, and, and even broader than that, a larger field agriculture, um, emphasized that it's not that there was not a sense of, of, of land ownership, as you know, we were all taught in grade schools. Indians didn't believe in owning land. Well, to a large extent, these folks in the south, in what is now the southeastern United States, did. But they believed that that land was owned together by something that we now call a town in English. And um, that town uh, owned the fields and the uncultivated lands around it. Um, it, to quite uh, for an, all the way until that met you know some other town's lands. All of that then is common property. However, within that large um, area that is communally owned, that is owned by the community, um, people begin to people farm and garden. And whether it be a small garden close to a home or the large town field, people work particular pieces of land. They do not own the land that they are farming, but they own the produce from it. They enjoy what we could call usufruct rights, um, or as I like to put it more simply, use rights. And that is they own the produce of the land. One can say that they own the field and that the field is a cleared and a cultivated place, but they don't own the soil upon which it rests. This is important for a number of reasons, because it really emphasizes that labor creates wealth, which I think is true. Um, and um, though, of course, the natural environment itself is invested and produces wealth, 
humanly owned wealth is, is generated through this kind of labor. It also prevents the long-term accumulation of wealth. And it, all of Creek society was actually structured in a way that did not create incentive for the long-term accumulation of wealth. So you have a system in which there is ownership. There's ownership of the land by the town, and there is ownership of a field or a garden by an individual, but there is not ownership of the land itself. That is an ownership system, but it's very different from the one that we're used to. What begins to emerge over the course of the 18th, the very end of the 18th century, and then more strongly, especially in the 19th century, especially after removal, is a mixed system. That older system still has a large amount of purchase. Many people still cultivate town fields, um, and there are still the notion of town ownership. But within it, some people, because they start to um, start to argue for a more fixed ownership of land, but the way to get there is very frequently not through land. The ownership of slaves is a crucial part of this story. Because remember, I said that in this system, it's labor that creates wealth. It's labor that made you own a field because you cleared a field. But if you start to own a slave, a slave in the 19th century U.S. American sense of a chattel slave, um, you also own that slave's property. And so if that slave works a field, that field actually becomes the owner's. It becomes the master's. So the entry of chattel slavery, of racialized chattel slavery, into the Creek Nation um, was a story that had profound implications for the history of land ownership um, in the Creek Nation, which I argue had profound implications for struggles over authority um, and even struggles over identity, what it meant to be Creek. Now, how did the... Um how did the Creek experience the Civil War and how did the, you know, I know we're jumping over um, removal here, um, but, but you know, I want to get to the period after the Civil War, but I'm curious how you see the Civil War um, either furthering or hindering the kind of transformations you, you started to lay out with the introduction of slavery and the sort of concomitant race systems that um, began to develop in Creek society. What was the, what was the role of the Civil War in, in the Creek Nation uh, along those lines? Well, first, just to narrate exactly what happened in, in the Civil War, so the, the Creek um, basically divided um, in the war. Um, as I said, the Creeks were profoundly divided. And those divisions oftentimes had to do with the level of one's involvement in commercial agriculture and in um, the slavery that made plantation agriculture possible. And the faction that dominated uh, the, the what was it, the, the centralizing and central government of the Creek Nation aligned itself with the Confederacy and um, supported the South in the war. Their opponents, who uh, tended to represent uh, towns and individuals who were uh, less involved in commercial agriculture, and that is practiced small um, farming, maybe still uh, communal farming, um, people that were often called traditionalists um, uh, at the time aligned themselves, those towns aligned themselves more with um, the Union. And so the, 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 the nation split um, in the American Civil War. In the aftermath of the war, the country was totally destroyed. Um, 
not only uh, had the fields been, had been, been abandoned, the houses had been burned, uh, the, the years of war had been, had very, been very brutal for the nation, and everything needed to be remade. Um, and when it was remade, it wasn't remade the same. What happened in terms of land ownership is that now, of course, um, when the treaty between the, between the Creeks and the United States mandated the emancipation of Creek slaves. So plantation slavery was no longer possible. What that meant is that the former Creek land, uh, former Creek slave owners, former the, the towns and the families that had practiced plantation agriculture, kind of this wealthy elite, um, needed to turn to something else. And what they ultimately turned to was cattle production. Emancipation made it hard for them to dominate enough labor to make agriculture work. Um, but uh, cattle production required far less labor. Um, first of all, because the initial cattle production was basically based around um, non-Creek, uh, especially uh, whites from surrounding areas, uh, uh, grazing their cattle on land rented um, from a creek in the United in in the Creek Nation. And then after that, uh, some creeks also simultaneously uh, fenced and, and had their own uh, pastures and became you know, cattle producers themselves. Now, so, so the story is this. Look at the steps. You see, emancipation takes away the labor supply that's necessary for plantation agriculture. The plantation owners, therefore, turn to um, the cattle industry either renting out pasture land or creating pasture land themselves by fencing it. This is a very profound story uh, impact on the history of land ownership because pasture lands are enormous. And it's one thing, there are, there are kind of physical and labor limits on how large cotton fields got or, or other planted fields got. But pasture lands could encompass hundreds and hundreds of square miles simply by the act of fencing. And don't forget that barbed wire fencing is coming into use at this time. Um, Creek people could claim now ownership over land. They say, well, we've transformed it. We're using it. Uh, our Creek land ownership system emphasizes that if you transform land, if you improve it, to use that term, um, you turn it into an ownable field. So they extended the model of you can own a field that you're planting to you can own a pasture that you fence and are grazing. And that absorbs a whole lot more land. Simultaneously, but that was only a small fraction of the nation that was involved in that. Many, many more people are still very small producers. Maybe they run a few cattle. They're planting, you know, some acres of corn and mixed other crops involved. And this, um, this new system of pasture land ownership um, offends them. First of all, displaces many of them. Okay, if you start, you start, many people got fenced in. Their, their plots that they wanted to farm were fenced in. And second of all, it was absorbing land in a way that they did not understand that their land-owning system was supposed to support, and they objected. So what these people did is they went back to farming. More of them, increasingly, there's, there's less communal farming and more individual farming. After the Civil War, it's very much kind of an individual farming kind of situation. But you have small farmers and large pastures owners. The small farmers very much objected to what the large pasture owners were doing in terms of land absorption. And they tried in, in political battles um, in the Creek government to control, to place limits 
on um, how much land uh, pasture owners could use and in lots of different ways. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the same time, you're seeing these um, these forces over. Uh, these conflicts over land ownership, you're also seeing a struggle, uh, much like throughout the rest of the South in the aftermath of the Civil War, uh, over the nature of race in Creek society. Some forces seeking to maintain the racial hierarchy that placed uh, black Creeks at the bottom. But you also find what you call a, a heterogeneous and cosmopolitan nationalism. Now, those are adjectives that are not often associated with nationalism at all, particularly uh, in the 19th century South. What do you mean by that? Where did you find these manifestations of cosmopolitanism and, and heterogeneity? Well, the development of the conflict over Creek identity is not parallel to the conflict over Creek land. They're deeply involved with one another. Okay, the what happened is that these small landowners or the small excuse me, small farmers who were objecting to with the large cattle producers and pasture pasture owners were doing were now a very multiracial group. Okay, you have everything from people who have recently been emancipated from slavery and are identified and identify themselves as colored creeks, as black creeks, to people who uh, had always maintained a strong distance from the plantation owners and now the cattle owners and who identified and were identified as full blood creeks. Okay. Now, these people had a lot of things that separated them, often language, sometimes religion, certainly the way that their uh, appearance was described in racialized terms, um, the people that they were related to, um, some of their customs were different. Um, now, but one thing that did link them is that they were Creek citizens um, and that they understood their nationhood as being one that was tied to a certain system of land ownership where a small producer could clear part of the commons and use it to produce a crop. And they built, in the aftermath of emancipation and through the 1870s and through the 1880s, a sense of that they were Creeks together, um, that they were part of a heterogeneous nation, part of a cosmopolitan nation where difference was acknowledged um, and recognized, but the racial difference in this context um, was not the cause of separation, but in some ways something that they could bridge together through their common emphasis on a nationalism that could override those differences. This was partly uh, a new development that came out of the presence now of a large emancipated African uh, descent population and the continuing presence of uh, an indigenous population. And so, but it was also uh, drew on, so it drew on that present situation, the present political and economic crisis, but it also drew, I argue, on very deep Creek roots um, because the Creek oral tradition has many stories about the emergence of the Creek Confederacy um, centuries earlier. And that those stories are about how different towns in um, places like Alabama came with time to build, to build a confederacy that became the Creek Nation despite the linguistic or cultural differences that separated them. So from the very beginning, there is a tradition in Creek um, from the very beginning of there being an idea of of something called the Creek Nation, or or which which emerged from the Creek Confederacy, that was about a confederation of things that were different, 
um, that, in, that incorporated heterogeneity and could deal with heterogeneity. And that idea was extended in this new period, to, uh, but extended in a way that was organic to Creek society, to incorporate people of African descent, emancipated slaves. So I really do see this as, as, as a remarkable development, because what you have is this emancipated population, which becomes a political force in alliance with the small farmers um, of the Creek nation after the end of the Civil War and after emancipation. Nothing could look more different or more unfamiliar um, in American history. And in many ways, it's a, it's, a, it's a Creek response to a crisis that was not altogether different okay, um, than the crisis that was being faced in, uh, in the American South. But it's a, it's, it's a remarkable story. On the opposite side of this, you have these kind of um, these pasture-owning and cattle-producing uh, creeks. Um, many of them descended from the plantation-owning families um, who look at the Creek Nation in a very different way and uh, do not emphasize its heterogeneity, do not emphasize especially the possibility of, of, of the nation being far greater and incorporating uh, different races relatively unproblematically, but instead emphasize a racialized sense of what's being Creek. So the history of land and the history of whether the, what, whether the nation was about race or about something else that could incorporate difference, that could be based around the defending of land, uh, is one story, and it's a powerful one. Hmm. Of course, uh, the allotment process complicates this uh, tremendously, um, and it's a, it's a central concept for you here as well. Um, as, in fact, you organize your book into three parts before allotment, allotment, and living under allotment. Um, and you write about how allotment uh, was property law. It was race law. Um, it codified tribal and racial categories. Um, and, and you see, you know, the ground changes, obviously, tremendously in Creek society. I'm hoping you can talk a little bit about allotment um, and how particularly um, the sort of multiracial resistance um, plays out. Uh, in the allotment period, I'd be, I'd be happy to. It, it's not only that allotment runs counter to this um, sense of uh, a nation that includes difference, of a diverse nation. It undermines its very basis because the um, and not it doesn't undermine all of its bases in that there were cultural bases in the oral tradition. It doesn't undermine the social and cultural relationships between people, but the political reality that had really brought black Creeks and non-black small farming Creeks together in the late 19th century was the defense of the land tenure system of the common lands, that the common lands could not be overrun by, by pasture lands. So to defend those lands was to defend the nation, what it meant to be Creek. And to defend Creekness was to defend those lands. When the United States rams allotment down the throats of the Creek Nation, it takes what is a common thing, it takes what is glue, and turns it into a dividing blade. It takes land, which had been something that we defend together, despite our differences, and it, turns, and it turned land into something that folks um, were forced structurally and legally um, to, to, to see as, as, as divided individual property. So the idea then, talking about didn't disappear altogether, 
but allotment was a direct assault on that. And I think that's an important story to tell. There's so much interest today on the relations between African Americans and Native Americans and the position of people of African descent within Indian nations. And one of the questions that, you know, any of us who work in this field often get is, oh, this kind of the sense that, oh, Indians are racist too, right? So, but we need to understand how racism structures, is, is structured um, in relationship to, to, to uh, land systems over which Native people have had very little control um, and how this system of racial division is a system that is related to other systems imposed by the colonial power of the United States. Mm. So allotment, um, which really rolls through the 1890s into, uh, and really pretty much complete by the first years of the 20th century, though there's still questions to resolve into the 21st, um, divides up the common estate into private uh, plots. And those private plots, you know, we know later on, are very quickly uh, dispossessed because one thing that allotment does is it's, 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 it's difficult enough to hold on to land that you hold in common. But land that was held in common by the Creek Nation could be defended in common by the need for any land session to be agreed upon through some sort of a political body. Um, but once land is uh, apportioned to individuals, it's much more quickly dispossessed. Indian people are much more quickly dispossessed. And, um, you, know, you know, we're down to very quickly in the years after, a lot of the years after statehood, you're down to like only one in 10 of, uh, of, 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 of allottees are owning their land at that point. Yeah, you write particularly, um, there's a, uh, a particularly emblematic transformation in this period um, that you talk about with the Creek leader, and I'm going to, I should have asked you how to pronounce his name first, but uh, Ispar Hesher? People generally say Spaichi. Spaichi, wow, I'm ter- yeah. tremendously off there. Um, well, how you can't be blamed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he advocated um, the type of uh, cosmopolitanism, the interracial Creek nationalism that you laid out earlier, uh, but in the allotment period, uh, he soon came to uh, support or at least participate in some of the um, hardening hierarchies that, that the allotment period ushers in. What does his transformation say about the process that's going on in Creek society in this period? Yeah, I think that the word that you used, emblematic, is, is, uh, is a good one of it, uh, is a good term. Spaichi had been had emerged as the leading light in kind of the later pre-allotment years in the 1880s and into the 1890s as uh, one of the primary opponents um, to allotment. And he made it the center of his career as a politician. He was also a, a farmer um, and I believe, uh, you know, he, he, and, and, and a local leader. Um, and what Spaichi did is he made that defense of the nation, its social indivisibility into races, and its geographic indivisibility, it cannot be cut up into privately owned plots, kind of the center of his politics. But at the same time, he's expressing a very strong idea. It was not something that he came up with. Um, but once allotment becomes forced down on him, the passage that you're referring to is where he starts to say, well, okay, if allotment's going to happen, there will be a certain amount of land allotted for Indians and then a certain amount of land 
allotted for Negroes, for people of African descent. And the people of African descent would get less land. Okay, so so he had switched. Not to say that they could do, that the people of African descent would get no land, but that they were entitled to less land than the people that he would consider to be real Indians. So it's just a great illustration of what the um, of what allotment had done. It had took something that was a bond and turned it into a dividing line, a force of division. Um, that's so when he switches from I will recognize all people as equals, whether white, red, or black, um, which is like around 1891, I think that he says that, to just a few years later, I guess 1897, 1898, when he says that you know uh, Indians should get a whole 160 acres, but freedmen, that is black people, should only get 40, you see this switch has happened. Um and this kind of correlates to the question I didn't answer for you before, which was, you know, I say that it's land law, but it's also race law. Um, allotment is land law, but it's also race law. In order to, once allotment is forced on the Creek Nation, um, land is then allotted to people, not merely as individuals, but as racialized individuals. Because in order for allotment to take place, in order for the nation, the national lands to be divided up and given to tribal citizens, the, the, the federal government um, needed a, a role, a final role of who would be entitled to an allotment. And that role or those roles, which are referred to as the Dawes roles, contain fractional fractional descriptions of each and every individual according to their degree of Indian blood, um, except for people that are put on roles called the Freedmen Rolls. And those Freedmen Rolls are people that were deemed to be of African descent and not and with no attention played to any degree of Native ancestry um, in their families. So um, the process of allotment depended on enrollment. Enrollment was a racialized and indeed a racializing procedure because it placed definitive, legally definitive um, racial descriptors on each and every allottee, whether that be full blood, mixed blood of some fraction or another, or freedmen, which presumably and legally meant not having Indian ancestry, despite the fact that many of these people may have had and indeed did have. Uh, native ancestry. And then those divisions became legally powerful um, because the federal government followed different policies in terms of how much they restricted the taxation and the sale of lands, whether people were enrolled as full bloods of mixed bloods up to 50%, mixed bloods up to three quarters, or uh, not of Indian descent. I'm really um, jumping ahead a little bit here uh, to the a few decades later. Um, sure. I was really fascinated and, and quite surprised uh, by the level of agrarian radicalism in Oklahoma. I'm not familiar with the literature, perhaps that why I was so that's why I was so surprised. Um, but you, in fact, you write that the Socialist Party saw its most dramatic growth in the state, um, in both absolute numbers and in numbers relative to the population. Um, how does this radicalism that explodes in Oklahoma in the 1910s play into the larger story you're telling here? It's a very good question. Um, 
it has to do with the powers and because the story that I want to tell is the explosion of radicalism, but I also want to talk about its rapid decline because that's that that point is 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 essential to understanding the explosion of radicalism because for me the question is how is it that Oklahoma in 1914, 1916, has this unbelievably vigorous socialist party, one that in absolute numbers and a percentage of the population and in terms of numbers of officials that are successfully elected in everything from town officials to county officials to state government, how is it that that turns into, um, that, that, that that party by 1920 is gone, and very quickly Oklahoma can rightly be described as a very, very, um, as a, as a country, as a, what is now recognized as a very conservative state. Um, what it has to do with the kind of radicalism that I'm describing, and that is agrarian radicalism, as you said, that agrarian radicalism was based on questions of entitlement to land. And while there were many different claims of while we can imagine many different kinds of radical agrarianism and while there were marxist agrarians in oklahoma who thought that all that land was a part of the means of production and should thus be owned in common the reason i argue following other scholars uh including jim Bissett here um that the socialist party took off so quickly especially in eastern oklahoma was that it embraced small farmers, and small farmers embraced it. And small farmers, especially the small white farmers that I'm talking about, embraced it after it made clear that it was dedicated to the notion of land to the tiller, that the person who farms land should be allowed to own land. And it didn't do that in a way that depended on European Marxism so much as it depended on very old white American agrarian notions rooted in Jeffersonianism that talked about the yeoman individual and his right, because we're talking about a male discourse here, his right to own his farm. That discourse fed the growth of the Socialist Party, but also played into and depended upon uh, very conservative notions um, uh, in uh, very reactionary notions, very racist notions, um, that could be used for other purposes in Oklahoma politics after the Socialist Party is dismantled through a series of events centering around uh, First World War, especially, um, especially its relationship to, uh, to, uh, uh, to kind of an insurgency around the draft, um, but also with this quashing of radicalism after World War One, you know, during during and after World War One, you have these very uh, the patriotic and jingoistic organizations, which are uh, uh, and laws in the state of Oklahoma and nationwide that are opposing uh, radicalism, Socialist Party, which is put down nationwide. But fundamentally, it fits into the larger story because I argue that land was both central to the success the Socialist Party enjoyed. But the way that land played into the racist, racial and racializing and racist story about white male land ownership uh, ultimately undermined, if you will, the radical message and the radical um, possibilities of socialism in Oklahoma. That's fascinating. Um, yeah, you have um, two very different examples um, 
pretty closely back to back. There was the d- disastrous rebellion um, of the working class union uh, in Oklahoma, which uh, saw uh, whites, blacks, and Indians working together. Obviously, it wasn't successful, and it met swift and brutal repression. But it's a very different um, urban, or, or it's a very different rebellion than you see in the Tulsa race riots, which happened around that same period. Is that right? Well, one is uh, 1917, the Green Corn Rebellion, right. and then Tulsa Riots, 1921. Gotcha. Um, and uh, so you have explosions of violence, but in very, very different ways. Right, exactly. On the one hand, I mean, the, the, the real violence of the Green Corn Rebellion is honestly it's the attacks of posses upon mm-hmm. and, the, and the aftermath is the attacks of posses on the insurgents and the people associated with the insurgency, associated with the left, and the suppression of the left in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that is that the Green Corps Rebellion is, is a group of farmers centered around Sasakwa and kind of in the southern uh, Creek country and, and into the Seminole country, um, which is a very much uh, mixed race tenure farming situation where uh, poor blacks and poor Indians and poor whites um, had a lot in common despite all the differences that they recognized between them. And they together, uh, in numbers, and there's strong evidence that together people from all these groups were involved in uh, an idea of a, of a militant resistance to the draft that was quashed through posses. The 1921 Tulsa riots is a very different story. Though one part of the story that's often forgotten is that there is a story of self-defense at its very center. Um, in 1921, uh, African-American man in Tulsa was accused of assaulting a white woman in an elevator, um, and he was taken into custody down at the, the courthouse in downtown Oklahoma. And there had been many stories, there's a long history of lynching in Oklahoma, and anybody who knows anything about American history knows that this is the perfect setup for a lynching. And African-Americans in Oklahoma, which included African Creeks in Oklahoma, knew knew American history very well indeed. And so a large number of them went down to, uh, or a a group of men went down armed to defend the courthouse to keep that individual, Dick Craven, from being taken from the courthouse and lynched. Um, the response to this was a massive white riot on the black population, which was uh, armed and supported by by the by the by the militia. It was armed and supported by the city authorities, and it resulted in the destruction of um, Greenwood of the uh, large population, uh, the large center of the black population in Tulsa, including a large black native population, Black Creek, Black Choctaw, Black Black Cherokee, and other folks lived in that neighborhood. Um, So these stories are both about violence, and they both kind of center around the uh, immediate, around the the World War I years, but but they're very different. The one thing that unites them is the way that the concerted power of civilian and state authority was used to quash um, uh, quash efforts to resist um, the, the authority that was establishing itself still um, as preeminent in this new state. The Green Corn Rebellion, of course, was particularly threatening to the racist power structure um, in my premises to uh, Oklahoma because of the way that blacks and Indians and whites were uh, coalescing as a class movement. But uh, black self-defense in Tulsa 
was extraordinarily threatening as well. And in both cases, uh, it was made very clear through the coordination of state agencies and uh, white popular violence that this was not going to be tolerated. Just as we as we get cl- close to the end of this interview, I want to return um, to something you, you mentioned earlier, um, which is that there's a, a sort of uh, a very ahistorical or perhaps naive uh, question that, that scholars in Native American studies um, sometimes get asked about uh, race in Indian nations. And it's, it's come to uh, national prominence recently in a very different example, obviously, with its own history, but with um, the issue of black Cherokees. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to just get a sense of um, your, your narrative ends uh, in, the, in the late 1920s. Um, but in your epilogue, you suggest the ways in which the themes you explore in your book uh, continue to shape Creek society in the middle and later and uh, uh, the end of the 20th century. Um, why is the period you explore uh, in, in your research here important to understanding uh, later or even contemporary dynamics in Oklahoma? Thank you for asking. It's a very good question. Um, first of all, because because what I try to explore is how what we take to be natural was created through a series of processes and often interventions of the American state on the Creek Nation and on the political the lands of the Creek Nation that became a central Oklahoma. Um, so that is to say, if I look at how the ownership of property in people corresponded to the ownership of property and land. And then I say that contests over the, pro- the, the of what property and land would mean, contests over what a nation could mean um, were vigorous and in, could include arguments for a rich and diverse um, kind of a nation, like the Creek Nation, when it was cosmopolitan and embraced um, the differences within it in its opposition to colonialism. Then I can say that then it helps, and then if I can display how a series of policies related to race and land took that apart and created something that we now take as natural, a capitalist market in land, a tripartite Oklahoma division of races into something that's very clearly white, something very clearly Indian, something very clearly black, and never the twain shall meet. What I try to do is I try to narrate how there was something very different and then something that looks so familiar was created through a series of policies. So arguing how something is made helps us to understand how it functions and how it is indeed not a naturally occurring phenomenon. So I try to denaturalize race. I try to denaturalize the capitalist order in the countryside. I try to denaturalize the idea um, that Indians are going to be landless no matter what. That's important for a couple of reasons, I think. Um, First of all, for looking at 20th century Oklahoma history as being about a consolidation and defense um, around stories about American tradition or about uh, American identity or uh, racial supremacy that are actually new and fragile. Um, And so I want to emphasize that novelty and that fragility to the story of that structure. Not that they're about to fall apart, but 
but the, 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 I really look at the the, the the tremendous defense of white supremacy, for example, in in the context of the uh, the Tulsa riot or, um, or or of the white power structure in rural Oklahoma in the Green Corn Rebellion, as emphasizing that these things were new and needed to be defended. Um, by the people that were claiming themselves as the authority of Oklahoma. So that helps us to understand the 20th century um, as its novelty and helps us to understand also how ideas that we think of as the, as the reemergence of the complexity of black and native um, relations into the consciousness of uh, American society outside Indian country since the 1980s and the 1990s, and especially, you know, in the last 10 years or so, um, took many people by surprise. Um, I don't think that it took a lot of people in, 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 in the Creek Nation or the Cherokee Nation entirely by surprise. But that story contains so much potential for helping us to better understand um, the history of Native people, the history of colonialism, and the history of the United States, to understand that the kind of structures of uh, white settler colonialism and of uh, racial division and of of uh, class structure that we're looking at and are often proclaimed themselves to be natural, um, biologically natural, in the uh, as, as concerns race or economically natural as concerns uh, capitalism, are far from natural, but are actually um, political constructions. And I think that understanding how things are made is important for opening up political conversations about how they may be indeed made to be different. Um, what has been made can be changed. Um, and understanding the process by which um, injustices or inequalities um, are made, uh, that discourses of race uh, are made, is important for understanding how they can be resisted. Um, similarly, with class structure, with uh, structures of economic inequality, which are premised on the dispossession of Native people, understanding how that was made it might, I would hope, in some modest way, contribute to our understanding how we can uh, move forward in the future. I think for those reasons and uh, dozens more, this is I highly recommend this book. Um, and just reemphasize to our listeners for is even how uh, detailed this discussion has been about uh, the color of the land. Uh, Dr. Chang's work here. We're only in the tip of the iceberg and and what uh, you can explore in this book. So I, I highly recommend you pick up a copy of uh, of the color of the land, race, nation, and the politics of land ownership in Oklahoma from the University of North Carolina Press. Uh, finally, by way of closing, um, I'm hoping uh, you wouldn't mind telling us a bit about your, what you're working on next. I know it, it, it involves uh, Hawaiian workers in California, if that's right, and I just want to revisit what you laid out earlier when you said uh, when you entered your dissertation uh, uh, research, you had wanted to write about something along those lines, but you felt like you weren't ready then. Uh, what's changed and what are you working on now? Well, first of all, thanks again for your really kind words. It's, uh, I really do appreciate that. Um, uh, what I'm working on now is uh, about Hawaii. Um, there's a recently published thing that, has, that, in, that entails Hawaiian workers in California, or Hawaiian um, goldfield laborers in California uh, during the, the gold rush. But um, that's part 
there's an article that recently just came out in the JAH um, that's part of a larger uh, project, uh, which is uh, on Native Hawaiians and global geography in the 19th century. And by that I mean, we've generally thought of places like Hawaii. We thought of Hawaii as, as perhaps in, in most uh, discourses about world history, it appears as a small episode in the larger story of the European discovery of the world. Um, Hawaii is one place among many that gets discovered. Um, and then we move on to the next discovery. But I think that it's much more interesting to think about um, what can we learn about the world and what can we learn about Hawaii if instead of looking at Hawaii as a place that is discovered, but to look at Hawaiians as people who themselves are encountering global geography. The Hawaiian, the Hawaiian investigation, discovery, exploration of the world is a very old story. It has to do with the story of Polynesians exploring the Pacific and coming to settle the previously uninhabited island of Hawaii centuries ago. Now, you know, in the, in, in the early centuries of the, of the first millennium uh, A.D. Um, but that story continues on. Um, and after uh, Cook arrives in 1887 in, um, in Hawaii, um, Hawaiians themselves continue to go forth, I argue, and explore the world physically through their travels, whether those be as laborers in California gold fields or as uh, fur trade laborers in with the Northwest uh, United States or as sailors and whalers around the globe, through their readings and their writings. And Hawaiians are a vigorous, uh, literate population with a tremendous rate of literacy, the, perhaps the highest, the nation with the highest rate of literacy in the middle 19th century of any in the world. Um, and in their marriages to people from around the world and the kinship ties that they made through their spirituality and their religion. In so many different ways, Native Hawaiian people are conceptualizing the globe, how it is organized, and placing themselves in it strategically um, inside what they're describing as global orders of power, global orders of wealth, global orders of religion, global orders of colonialism, etc., and trying to place themselves in it. So it's a very much a way of reconceptualizing um, the, the Hawaii and reconceptualizing the relationship of indigenous people to global history, um, not as small uh, marginal actors in it, but as very important uh, kind of to, first of all, thinking about what the globe might mean, but also uh, part of this story is the thinking about uh, how indigenous people have thought about what we now look at as kind of a global a world of many different indigenous peoples, okay, and kind of inventing notions of indigeneity that uh, span uh, territory, geography, and time. So that's the project that I'm working on, um, and what has changed is Hawaiian studies, which I was, I mean, having grown up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with relatively little knowledge of the Hawaiian language or of um, the Hawaiian past, there was a lot of questions that were open to me, but not a lot of answers that I could find. And on top of that, the literature, the older literature in Hawaii that existed when I was in graduate school, as I tried to explore, was not the rich literature that there is now. Native Hawaiian scholars are responsible for an explosion over the last 20 years of literature um, that has proceeded from indigenous perspectives to interrogate um, the Hawaiian past. And interrogating the Hawaiian past from indigenous perspectives and digging very closely into the Hawaiian, um, the immediacy of Hawaiian context in a very interesting way 
the closeness of the research, the immediacy of the context has created for it a global audience of people who are fascinated by the importance of Hawaiian studies that can speak to global indigenous studies. And a uh, work that was very, very important to me was the publication of Noe Noe Silva's Aloha Betrayed, um, which was the first um, work of its scale and scope that depended on native Hawaiian language sources. And so what Noe Noe Silva did for me in Aloha Betrayed is she demonstrated that there is a path through learning the language and through taking the rich archives that Native Hawaiians have left for us seriously as the best source for understanding Native Hawaiian history. And so then I took upon myself the task of, of learning Hawaiian, and it's been, and that's another revolution, is now there's just wonderful instructional materials where one can study to learn to read Hawaiian and to engage in this research. So the world changed um, from the time when I was in graduate school to now in ways that made it possible for me to find a path where even though I have lived so far away from Hawaii, I can have some contribution um, about talking about this global context um, and have some way of, of hopefully in a modest way contributing to this, uh, this wonderful literature. Well, it sounds fascinating. I look forward to reading it. Um, and thanks for, for letting us know what you're up to. Uh, well, that concludes our interview. We've been talking with uh, Dr. David Chang of the University of Minnesota. He's published uh, this book, The Color of the Land, Race, Nation, and the Politics of Land Ownership in Oklahoma, 1832 to 1929 from the University of North Carolina Press. Dr. Chang, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate your conversation. I've been talking with Dr. David Chang, professor of history at the University of Minnesota and author of The Color of the Land, Race, Nation, and the Politics of Land Ownership in Oklahoma, 1832-1929. You can find us at the web at newbooksinnativeamericanstudies.com, where you can leave comments and access our full archive of podcasts, as well as links to other series in the New Books Network. I encourage you to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where you can keep up with all the new releases and leave comments. As always, do let me know if there's a book you'd like to hear discussed on this program. For the New Books Network, thanks so much for listening.